Welcome to The Future Strategist. Uh, today, returning guest, Robin Hansen. Robin is a fellow economist. He's at George Mason University. And we're going to talk about AI risk. Hi, Robin. How have you been doing? I haven't talked to you in a long time, so I'm eager to talk to you. Yes. So Robin and I, uh, we, we disagree over uh, how dangerous AI is likely to be. So uh, my view is I think over the next 20 years, there's more than a 50% chance that an AI is going to kill us. And uh, Robin, my impression is that you put that risk at under 1%. I, I put the particular FOOM scenario at less than 1%. I have other risks that I will take more seriously and we can discuss that here. Um, but one of the reasons I'm eager to talk to you is you understand economics yes. <laughs> much better than most people. So we can talk in that language and uh, I that will let me uh, say things and let us understand each other. Sure. So one point of agreement is that we both think if we do create, um, you know, computer superintelligences, and there's a lot of them, that they will have an instrumental drive probably to preserve markets, that markets are extremely useful. We don't know for sure, but probably even a superintelligence sure, want to yes. keep them. Right. I think there's a number of innovations that humans have pioneered that will just last for many millions of years. <laughs> Uh, just like, you know, many kinds of animals pioneered innovations like eyes and legs that, you know, seem to be robust and will last for a long time. Uh, markets, law, uh, language, these are robust innovations. They they will last far beyond humans. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, like linear algebra, they're probably going to make use of it. In, right. And markets, now you, you, there's an argument made by non-economists that, oh, well, we need markets because we're not smart enough to figure out how to organize things, but a superintelligence wouldn't need it. But, you know, my response to that, well, yeah, they could probably figure out our current economy without the use of markets, but their greater intelligence will give them more complexity. Right. And so, the, it you know, it kind of cuts both ways. Being smarter means you have something more complex, which creates a better need for markets. Right. So many people imagine the single superintelligence that arises that rules all and therefore has no need of coordination problems internally and therefore has no need of markets or law or anything. I presume that you and I can at least initially discuss a scenario where there are, say, thousands or millions of AIs coordinating together via law and market. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the way these um, large language models are working it, well, there's enormous economies of scale in in training them. Sorry, I just lost you for a moment. Can you repeat? Uh, sure. Like the, the we, you know, with this chat uh, GPT models, well, it's really expensive to train them. Once you've paid that fixed cost and have the weights, it's probably not that expensive to make different copies. So the current tech would seem to favor lots of different AIs probably emerging rather than just one. Right, and then we could discuss how similarly is their architecture or fundamental unaligned structure. Uh, so yes, presumably there are fewer, there's less variation in some underlying structure as there are in instances, but we can agree to imagine a world of, say, millions of AIs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and yeah, and they'll have different, the, the, the matrix is all the variables stored that will, they'll have be given different weights because they'll be optimizing for different things and they'll be competing with each other. Okay, so in that scenario, could you, you know, state the scenario you're worried about? What, what I think first they would have the capacity to kill us. So putting aside whether they'd want to, would you agree that if they well, wanted I, to kill us, they could? I, 
I mean, I would I would put that in the context of just a general risk of of a civil war or rebellion of sorts. That is, you know, we have a standard theories of political economy that suggests that any majority of force, if it could manage to coordinate, could try to exterminate the remainder and take over a society. And that's just long bit of risk. And it's sometimes been realized. Yes. And if that's the risk you're worried about, I'd say, well, yes, that will continue to be a risk. And then the question is, is it an increased risk for some particular reason? Okay, I agree. And these these minds will be very different from human minds. So we can't extrapolate from our human experience that well. So we're, it just seems very dangerous to create a bunch of entities that we don't really understand and hope that they choose not to kill us for instrumental reasons. But we have a lot of social science theory to help us understand the nature of revolutions mm -hmm. and the kinds of factors that produce them and the kinds of things that inhibit them. So we could use that to reason about potential future AI revolutions. Uh, we, we do, and we also have examples like the, the archaic humans and what we did with Neanderthals, yes. with chimps, and that, that doesn't sure. go well. Well, but in a modern economy, uh, revolutions seem to be suppressed relative to an ancient world of predation, right? So certainly the rate of war has gone way down over the last few thousand years. And the rate of predation in general has gone substantially down within humans compared to, say, animals. Uh, yeah, although there you got to take into account that we have hydrogen bombs pointed at our cities where we're kind of like playing Russian roulette and we win. Okay, but still, on average, we're winning. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but I, I mean that that it, it doesn't seem like we're, we're we're doing very well. And you look at the the risks we've taken, how close we've come to all-out war. Well, well, we aren't doing as well as we might in a counterfactual world where we were doing better. But like compared to most animals, uh, most predatory animals, humans have created a world where we interact much more via trade and complement each other through specialization of our efforts. I mean, humanity has pioneered a great productive world, which is mostly peaceful, even though war does happen I, at times. So I, I don't agree with that. I just think that, you know, the U.S., Russia and China having hydrogen bombs pointed at each other's cities. And this is kind of the basis for our interactions. That's so awful and so violent and so much worse than anything animals are capable of that I don't think you can say that we're sort of more peaceful. Well, we could say we produced this very productive economy, right? Yes. We, we are, uh, and that's what I mean by doing great. We are very productive mm -hmm. and mostly peaceful. Most of our interactions are peaceful. Uh, yes, although backed up by, you know, destroying billions of people if, you know, someone doesn't right. go along so, with that. So, I mean, in the, in the AI debate, I very much want to distinguish continuing progress problems that we have long had currently have and that we expect will continue into the future from new changes that ai would introduce so i fear people often are blaming ai for things that are there before ai and should be expected to continue unless we find solutions to them okay and i i agree with that so we'll, we'll, we'll the risk of like one suspects the United States, Soviet Union, China would, you know, seriously consider launching a first strike attack if they could take over the world and permanently eliminate the risk of themselves being targeted by hydrogen bombs. That that 
that's a continuing risk and AI might decide, well, wait, if we let humans maintain control, they might create another AI system that takes us out. So if we have the opportunity to launch a successful first strike attack, we'll, we'll consider doing it. Well, that's if there's one AI in yeah. the world of humans. If there's a world of thousands or millions of AIs, then the AIs may look to competing with each other more perhaps than competing with humans. Yeah, I agree. And, and one coalition might choose to fight another. And unfortunately, I think you told me this when I talked to you a while ago, that our environmental needs are going to be very different from the AI's environmental needs. So if they go to war, you could easily imagine them making the Earth uninhabitable to us. It's just a kind of minor side effect. So certainly machines will less need, um, you know, nature. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're less sensitive to the destruction of nature. Although I have to point out, humans could have a successor version of humans, brain emulations, that are also less susceptible to such things. So there is a point at time in which things much more like us have more of an even playing field on that dimension. Oh uh, yeah, and, and I, I agree with that. That's your, your emulation um, idea. Um, but that, that kind of is us mostly going extinct, at least in the way most people would consider us. And, you know, that could be a lot of people would consider that a bad outcome if biological humans weren't capable of continuing to exist. Well, so um, there's an extreme scenario where something like us becomes extinct. And then there is milder scenarios where things like us just get out competed that move to a margin, have a smaller percentage of the world, but still exist. So. Uh, I guess, which of those scenarios would you like to focus on in our discussion? Um, I, I think where we're outcompeted, that's actually a good scenario because we'll be so incredibly rich and they'll probably be great low marginal cost goods that that'll be utopia compared to now. So I'd rather talk about the scenario in which if we both looked at it, we would say, God, that's awful. We, we should shut down AI if we knew that future would happen. So then you're focused on basically the civil war scenario. The revolution scenario. Uh, yes. Uh, so uh, a continued peaceful respect for property rights and continued competition that meant things like humans today got basically got pushed to the margin and had to retire and you know live off of their retirement savings doesn't look so bad, but you're worried about the war and revolution. Uh, yes. Okay. So now the question is, how does AI make war and revolution? more likely than it otherwise would have been because, as we know, it has always been possible and has sometimes happened. Uh, yeah, the, the first is just introducing more players. Or it would be, it was bad news when North Korea acquired hydrogen bombs and we wouldn't want 10 more North Koreans type governments to arise. Well, what makes North Korea a new player different than South Korea exactly? Well, North Korea has atomic bombs and South Korea doesn't. South Korea could probably build them quickly. Uh, North Korea, one suspects the leaders of North Korea would be okay with exterminating most of humanity if it made them a bit better off. Don't know that for sure, but I wouldn't want to place myself, I wouldn't want to be in a situation where the leaders of North Korea would say, would be better off if they exterminated me. But neither would you want that for South Korea either, right? So, so we want to make a, I mean, we want to think about our mental model, our best models of what causes and prevents revolutions and civil wars. Yes. Uh, so, you know, one factor is certainly that um, civil wars can be very destructive of the capital base of a society. Mm -hmm. 
and our society is more fragile and interdependent. So once upon a time, if you had a civil war and you basically burned all the crops and buildings, it wasn't such a bad thing because you could build buildings faster and crops would grow back fast. And destroying basically everything you could in the process of taking over wasn't such a terrible thing. And in a modern economy, that's not it's no longer quite so true, right? That right. today, wars can do a lot more damage to the shared infrastructure that we all rely on. So that's one factor affecting the rates of wars and civil wars. Yes. Another factor, I think, is um, sort of worrying about what happens after the first revolution. <laughs> so we can think of revolutions as requiring coordination. And typically, um, you know, we're in a world where people are not very well set up to coordinate to have a civil war. In order to start coordinating for a civil war, you'd have to pass the message among your group of people. Say, let's let's humorously talk about tall versus short. Say, okay. <laughs> so say say the top 75% of tall people were decided to have a revolution against the bottom 25% of short people. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, in order to make this revolution work, they will have to spread the word among tall people that the revolution is coming and that they should, say, distance themselves from short people they might be vulnerable to, you know, stock up their weapons, uh, arrange their defense so that when the revolution happens, they can initiate and kill all the t short people and take over as the top 75% of tall people. So that's a possible revolution that could happen. Mm -hmm. uh, so one of the obstacles to that happening, of course, is that there are literally thousands of other possible ways you could divide up society to have a revolution. Right. And, you, and one of them has to sort of become the shelling point, the focal point, where we focus on this division versus all the others. So that's one of the obstacles, is other competing divisions will stand out as maybe alternative ways that you could divide up and have the revolution along, right? Yes. You could have right-hand versus left-hand people, for example. You could, that would be another way of doing the revolution. So um, one problem is, you know, at the moment, we just aren't very well coordinated to set up any of these revolutions, but you'd have to pass the word and people would start to reorganize themselves and separate. It's like at the moment in the United States, left versus right is somewhat separating in that they're moving into different places and living in different cities and they're using different mass media and things like that. That You might think of that as a prelude, the sort of thing you'd have to do ahead of time to, before you had a revolution. The more you build up this coordination capital to set up a revolution, the more that all the other potential revolutions are going to be aware of that and they will be similarly presumably pushed to also set up similar sorts of coordinations and of course the short people will be all the more inflamed and they will have an even stronger incentive to resist this uh, effort uh, because of risk aversion so um but if you manage to slowly build up the coordination capital to produce a revolution um, one of the things you have to worry about is right after you finish successfully killing off the bottom 25 percent of short people now, all this coordination capital you set up could be used by the right-handers to kill off the left-handers. And, you know, and then a couple more revolutions could happen after that. So each person has to wonder, if we manage to make this revolution happen, how do we make sure it stops at that first revolution and doesn't go to several more? Uh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree. That's the, the French Revolution problem, right, where you, the elites, people eventually turn on the elites and you give up everything to Napoleon. Right. So I think this is part of the so in our world today, we can all see that we aren't close to a revolution because nobody has close to setting up. But if if you were going to say, where are we closest to a revolution, say, in the United States today, I might say, well, left versus right, mm -hmm. uh, because people have geographically segregated there. They have sort of 
emo- invested emotional energy in hating the other side and telling themselves how much they hate the other side and how much they love their side and how you know morally indignant they are about that terrible other side and they don't even read the same newspapers or watch the same news as them and you know right we and people are investing substantial capital at the moment in making that division happen and perhaps setting that up for a revolution okay i i agree with what you've said so far with humans but I, I, let me. There's some objections to applying this to AIs. First, I think if there was, let's say, that the tallest 75% wiped out the, poor, the the shortest 25%, I think probably both of us would agree that would make the talls materially worse off in the long run, right? Even if they they were able to completely then say, all right, now we'll never do this again, and everyone accepted that, still just you know the value of human capital and there's returns, you know, the greater the population is benefits that would that would make the talls worse off. It's not obvious to me, but I'm happy to pursue that hypothesis if you. Till I want to hear what point you're going to try well, to make. Well, the, out of the it. AIs might not. The, if you have advanced AIs, killing off most humans would not make them worse off, and even killing off other AIs wouldn't necessarily make them so worse off. Are, are we focused on the scenario where humans have basically retired and are no longer in, an essential part of the economy? Is that the scenario uh, here? Yeah, humans are, are basically obsolete. Okay, so then I might say, well, let's take the hypothesis of we kill off the retirees mm-hmm. because there are, in fact, a great many retirees now. And as the population ages, that will only increase. So we could imagine killing off the 20 percent of the population of the adult population that's retired. Uh, is that a closer analogy then? Um, it, it would be. And as I'm sure you anticipate, I would say, but a lot of people get pleasure from being with their parents and grandparents. So a lot of people would say it's not in my self-interest to kill off all the retirees, a lot of people who are younger. How sure are you? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there are some people like that, but I mean, you know, obviously any revolution, there's going to be a lot of cross the cross the boundary line connections that will be lost there. Mm-hmm. That will be true of, you know, uh, tall and short, left-handed, right-handed. You know, it'll just be true for any any sort of division that, that one of the costs will be that. And that's part of, the say, the left-right preparation. People are now sort of separating those connections uh, and they're getting social approval for that separation and they get social disapproval for maintaining those connections, you know, exactly as part of the usual process of setting up a division. And so you can imagine that happening as, as the prelude to a retirement too. P- you know, people would slowly get more and more resentful of those retirees and all their wealth and the fact they're not working even though they could. Because as you know, uh, the age, the age at which people could keep working has been rising much faster than retirement age. Yeah. And so there is a, a set of people who are retired but could work. Yeah. And then the entitlement crisis, that's the amount of money we contribute to older people through Social Security and health care. That's an enormous burden on the U.S. economy. Right. So you can see that as the basis for resentment. Yeah. Even if you know some of those people. Yes. Yeah. And there, it is kind of surprising we don't see more of that resentment. But but the point here is that's a possibility, mm-hmm. and that doesn't happen yet plausibly just because of, of a coordination. So, But we could then ask about AIs. Do we really imagine a world where the AIs don't have a lot of social connections to humans and vice versa? I think we won't know. I mean, we'll know they'll have a lot of superficial ties. They'll be trained to treat us well and to say nice things. But, you know, just because of the nature of machine learning creating these AIs, we won't know if that's just superficial or if, you know, deep down they really care about us and would not turn on us if they had the opportunity. Well, let's talk about how deep humans love for each other is then. I mean, so we at least know more about that. Yes, right? yes. So, so 
this is one of the points at which I might appeal to you as a fellow economist. Okay. Many people look at our world and they see mostly law-abiding respect for property rights and peace, and they attribute that to sort of basic human altruism toward humans. Yeah. As opposed to what the economists tend to explain it more in terms of is a, an equilibrium where if you deviate, you will you will get punished. I, I agree, although there is, I mean, would you say from a viewpoint of economics and sort of selfish people, it is surprising that we don't have sort of more defections. It's surprising that, for example, we as professors, we it's almost never the case that students offer us bribes. Professors almost never try to, you know, extract bribes from students. Usually, we, you, you know, the classic example is why do you pay your cab driver? And if the answer is you'll get in trouble if you don't pay, then why doesn't after you pay your cab driver, why doesn't he demand you pay him again? It's just we are pretty honest. And some of that is due to threats. But it's also it seems like there's a lot of opportunities to gain by being dishonest and taking advantage of people that mostly aren't taken. And that could explain the relative success of, say, the U.S. versus Russia, where supposedly in Russia, people do take every opportunity to exploit their okay. people well, or their family. If we're if we want to if we will notice this, there's a distinction between U.S. behavior today and the say behavior in Russia or behavior in Europe a thousand years ago or mm -hmm. behavior in Africa a million years ago, right? If we're going to make distinctions there, then clearly the answer isn't human nature, right? That is, human nature is common across right. these various groups, and so we will have to explain this in terms of different local equilibria, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So then if we say there are equilibria where there's a lot of war and conflict and there's equilibria where there's a lot of peace, then we see at the moment we're in equilibrium with a lot of peace. And then we have to wonder how tentative or fragile is this equilibrium we're in. And this to me connects to this much more fundamental issue than AI, I think, which is just the risk of change. Mm -hmm. So, so Basically, there's a lot of ways you look at our world today and you say, this looks pretty good. And you look at past worlds and you say, those don't look so good. And you look at the future and you go, well, how sure can I be the future won't be like the past instead of today? And that just puts you into a frame of mind of saying, well, maybe I don't want change. And I think that's, there's, a lot, <laughs> there's a lot to that argument that's worth engaging. And that's not fundamentally an AI-driven argument. That's just change. You say, we don't know exactly why things are so nice right now. <laughs> We're not so sure why people are peaceful and law-abiding and respect property rights. And therefore, any substantial changes to our world could make us feel at risk that whatever it is that's working now will go away. Uh, yeah, I, I buy that argument. And, you know, uh, computer intelligence smarter than humans would introduce lots of rapid change. Well, so there's the difference of the size of the change and the rapidity, both of which we should discuss. Okay. Um, but I just wanted to like frame this as maybe the issue isn't so much AI as big and perhaps rapid change. That's the more fundamental thing you're worried about. That uh, is, AI stands in for you as something that could produce a lot of unexpected, unpredictable change, and that's the thing you're worried about. Yeah, I mean, in part, also, what I what we predict that things smarter than us would do. But well, yes, that's so, 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 but, but, it's a valid framing, I, I think. That you right, but I, I mean, if it's the smarter than us, then I want to hear arguments about why things that are smarter have more of these problems. That is, you know, obviously, if, if we are now smarter than our ancestors, then we can't attribute how things have gotten better to, you know, them being smarter than us. Uh, but, you know, it's your choice which direction you want to go here. Uh, but 
you know, it seems to me either you want to make the case that AI is being smarter is in fact the fundamental cause of why you're worried about the future, or you could just say, no, it's just more that a lot of big changes could happen. Okay, I think it's a lot of big changes and humans won't be the ones making the, the critical decisions. So we'll, well at the have moment, less control over the way things unfold. So at the moment, humans are divided into many different subgroups. And mm -hmm. are you worried about other subgroups of humans being in control of these decisions? For example, like people who are extroverts as opposed to introverts, or people who are word cells versus shape rotators, or people who are men versus women, or old versus young, or Asians versus Westerners. Um, well, I, I am certainly worried if you know China were to do much better than the United States and the Chinese Communist Party would be the dominant decision maker for Earth, that would bother me quite a bit. Would it bother you as much as the AIs being the decision makers? Uh, no, not as much as the AIs. And so, I mean, the key question here is what is it that's the basis of these divisions that make you more worried? I mean, what we're worried that there is just sort of a us versus them feeling and whoever you feel part of us with, you're less worried about and whoever is the them you fear. You well, know, if that's, the, if that's the issue, then we should face that head on. Okay, well, part of the issue is, let's say the worst happens with China taking over. They take over, they exterminate everyone who isn't Chinese, and they go well, on have, to colonize well, what, the universe. Well, what makes us believe that they would exterminate everyone? I, I don't, but I'm just saying the absolute worst. So I don't okay, think Okay, but we don't ask about the chances. Like you said, I worry about other people being in charge who aren't like you. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, what is it about other people who aren't like you that makes you worried about them being in charge? Uh, first, they won't value me. They won't value my family. And we use resources to survive. In actual, in actual fact, in our world, the people in charge don't really value you much, right? The world you're in right now, the people in charge do not actually value you personally. There's corporations who run the world. There's large political parties and governments who rule the world. There's, you know, big chunks of the world out there far from you. They, most of them hardly care anything about you. Okay, that's a good point. But I do have some... I, you know, in my small corner, I would know how to influence things if I got in trouble. Okay, but you know that influence is still pretty small, right? Um, <laughs> On a world small, scale, you have a tiny influence. It's it's tiny compared to the whole world, but it's not tiny compared to, say, how the legal system would treat me or the medical system or how, you know, what products I could buy at Walmart. And the reason Walmart pays attention to you is you have money to buy yeah. there, right? Yeah. But that's the reason why the Chinese pay attention to you too. If you pay them stuff, they will sell you stuff too. Walmart isn't any more devoted to you than Chinese are. Yeah, I mean, that, that's certainly true. But at least I think the Walmart employees would not, most of them wouldn't kill me to take my stuff even if I could get away with it. Well, I think the lack of, you know, organizations killing people is not really the lack of them being able to hire people willing to take that job, <laughs> honestly. Yeah. I think if they were willing to pay the money required to, you know, to pay for the effort and risks that that job entails, they could get plenty of employees who are willing to take that job. Uh, yeah. The fact that some people care about you is not going to prevent them from filling those jobs. Uh, yeah, they'd have to probably pay higher wages because there'd be fewer people they could find. But that's just because that job is a pretty risky difficult job. It's not about them loving you. Um, no, I, I, I agree with this, but I, I think it's not it's not in the interest of the people running Walmart to, say, change the environment of Earth so humans can't survive. Even if that would increase shareholder value, they're not going to do that. 
But so you're talking about a, a large scale coordination, right? So if, you, if you're imagining the AIs coordinating to poison the atmosphere so humans die and AIs survive, that's a lot like a revolution, basically. Yes, yes. And okay, maybe so not you're worried about an AI revolution. Yes, yes. But that then goes into the pool of all the other reasons why revolutions do and don't happen, right? This is one right. of many possible revolutions. And we want to ask, why are we more worried about this revolution than all the other possible revolutions? Okay. That, yeah. I, okay. Yes. If we're, we could discuss that. So one of the reasons I'm worried is that it could be a small number of agents that have the ability to carry out the your revolution. And you talked about coordination issues. AIs could potentially solve their coordination problems by, you know, changing their code. So a group of you know, a thousand AIs could say, hey, let's rewrite our code. So we'll win, we'll, we'll beat the humans and our AI enemies, and we'll also put something into our code and verify it so that we'll never do this again. They could commit in a way that humans never could. So I agree that this is a, at least an argument that's AI specific. Okay. Right. So we want to talk about AI fears as opposed to generic fears of change. This is at least something that's AI specific. Okay. Although in some sense, it's really just a fear about future coordination. So, for example, as you may know, propaganda during World War I and World War II in the United States commonly presented the other side as better coordinated. I, I didn't know that, but I, I accept that. Right. You know, so the Huns were a monolith, right? Mm -hmm. They don't have internal conflicts. They are all unified. And our divisions threaten our ability to fight them. So this is just a common argument in all wars, basically. Okay. <laughs> One says... We can't allow divisions among us because they're not, they don't have divisions. They are unified and we better be unified to fight them. And so people have always worried substantially about whether they were more divided than their opponents in war. Mm -hmm. And they were therefore always afraid of the coordination of the other people. That's one of the fears, of course, people had of communist China, say, early on, was this presentation of the the Asians is just a naturally unified race mm -hmm. who was therefore had fewer internal conflicts and therefore could just as a mass do things together for their shared purpose rather than having internal fighting. Okay, yeah, and, and certainly being able to overcome coordination problems, that's critical for a group to succeed. The ones that are better at that tend to do better. Right, so certainly one part of it, any generic fear is what would happen if some group came up that could coordinate better. This is actually the fear of mind control, right? Mm -hmm. Long, you know, for many decades in the West, there's been this fear of mind control would allow some nations or whatever to be more unified and have less internal divisions. Yes. Uh, and that was a scary technology. You might, you could be scared of letting mind control technology be developed because it might allow more coordination. So. I'm not actually convinced that AI would have a particularly, you know, likely ability to be better coordinated beyond just the generic possibility of inventing better coordination technologies. I, I certainly don't necessarily think our current core. I, I agree that, um, you know, it's possible that, you know, there'll be new, better coordination technologies in the future. I don't have any particular confidence that AIs have a particular advantage of coordination other than the fact that they would just be things that are in the future innovating and trying to do things. Why don't you so, think their ability to look at each other's code would give them an advantage? If you think of a system as composed of two parts, you can have a visible, clear code and an opaque everything else. 
So think of a company with a mission statement, right? Yeah. So you can look at the company's mission statement and you can maybe even look at the company's books. Uh, but the question is, there's, there's a lot of other things in the companies you can't see. So when two companies, say, try to make a deal with each other and a treaty in order to cooperate, one of the things they could do is, well, let's edit each other's mission statement to be a joint mission statement. And let's even like look at each other's books, accounting books. And the question is, how much could they, in fact, coordinate on the basis of just those kinds of sharing of, of explicit code? Yeah. And it seems to me that's relatively minor. <laughs> right, right. So you have to be postulating that these AIs, the visible part is just much more influential relative to the opaque part compared to other large corporations and organizations we see today. Yes. Uh, that's just not clear to me. Now, as you may know, I have this concept of futarchy, and I have a way that say, if futarchy were a mechanism of governance, then two nations could, in fact, more directly commit to doing things together by basically editing their national welfare function to include the welfare of the other nation. And if they did that visibly, then that would seem to be a more effective way they could commit to coordinate, with the, to join together in a common cause. Mm -hmm. But so as I said, merely allowing two nations to inspect each other's constitutions or even their official laws on the books doesn't seem to me so promising as a way to make two nations coordinate. So it's just not obvious that allowing AIs to show each other certain parts of their code is sufficient because there's just going to be a lot of big opaque parts of them. As you know, large language models today have a very simple basic algorithm and they've got a huge pile of opaque weights that uh, is much harder to, to, to make prove any theorems about. Okay, but you would be much more worried about an AI revolution if the AIs did think they could reliably change each other's code in a way they'd make binding commitments to each other. That would You'd be much more scared than you are now if you thought, yeah, that's what's likely to happen. Well, I, I would be more worried today about left versus right civil war if one side could find a way to, to bind themselves to each other through some sort of you know contract or blood, <laughs> blood mm -hmm. oath or something, right? If I heard that people were making blood oaths to stay on their side of the political spectrum and never marry or you know work with anybody on the other side, I would be more worried about civil war across the left versus right divide today. Okay. Yeah. So so I just not only the existence of coordination technologies, but people actually get in the habit of using them. That is a bad sign about potential civil war. Okay. But so so that but that does mean you would be more worried though. So you'd be more worried if it happened in humans, but if you also became convinced that yeah. If, you, if we saw in the future that advanced AI programs, you know, we, we set up some economic games for them to play and they ended up solving some prisoner's dilemmas, say, by altering each other's code and trusting each other, then you'd become much more worried and you'd look more favorably upon a proposal to slow down AI development. So, so let's talk about when is the right time to do what in this whole process. Okay. So uh, one scenario of a capitalist lawful scenario you know, world is that firm, for-profit firms produce AIs that they sell to customers, which with say some modest degree for customers to modify them for local purposes. Mm -hmm. And that these corporations are constantly monitoring and testing these AIs in their actual typical uses in order to uh, see if they are within range of, you know, what customers want. So in that scenario, uh, you would have to, you know, a problem would appear and then they would notice it and then they would have time to react to it. Or you have to postulate some problem appears much faster than they have any possibility of reacting to it. Or perhaps that 
something happens where they're in on the problem and they don't mind the problem. The rest of us do somehow. Mm -hmm. So what do you have in mind here? Uh, what I have in mind is we, we, you have these AIs that know what the company wants. And they're also they're, they're situationally aware enough to say, if I violate this, I will have changes made to me that I don't like. So I will not act unless and until I have the ability to protect my utility function, to protect my goals. That's, that's pretty much how humans act, right? So you're just postulating yeah. they're acting like humans. I mean, not all humans. I, I'm guessing on like your, your last month of being a professor, you're not going to defect and figure well, what's the college going to do to me. You're not going to ask, you know, your final semester as a professor, you're not going to sell But grades. I don't, if I don't, wouldn't do that, I'm not so sure why the AIs would do that either. Uh, that's not clear to me. Uh, I mean, evolutionary programming into people. But, but that evolutionary programming is a response to real conditions that are actually relevant. It's, it's not some strange, you know, counterfactual, irrelevant world. We have these behaviors exactly because they were useful in ancestral games. Yeah. Exactly. And so why why presume they are no longer relevant? Because evolution shaped your brain and it hasn't shaped the brain of these AIs. You're just postulating these AIs are better in some sense, right? Uh, more rational, yeah. Okay, but that just goes into the big bucket of them out-competing us and us getting pushed to the side as, as a retiree, right? Well, no. I mean, I, I think that's likely to happen regardless but I think this is more than they end up uh, killing us. And perhaps we won't be a very big deal. It's not, they'll, they'll kill us for a tiny little gain in their objective function, or it'll be a side effect of wars between AIs. So I, I think you're postulating here that AI's better capacity will produce more likely to have a violent revolution civil war. That's the key thing I'm questioning. Uh, yes, I, I do think that's, that's likely to happen. So then you must think that we have an unusual degree of peace at the moment because of accidental encodings of evolution that made us more peaceful than is rational for us. Um, I wouldn't say accidental. I mean, we're the descendants of people who, but, you know, beat neighboring right. tribes. and that's Accidental you know. with respect to our current world. That is, yes. in our current world, if we were more selfish and conniving and strategic, we would, in fact, win and and then our world would, in fact, be less peaceful. So the combination of our world, the, our world is peaceful at the moment because we are not being very optimal about our, you know, stabbing each other in the back. Uh, yes. Now, that, that gets to complicated ways. Like part of my utility function is I would feel horrible if I extracted a thousand dollar bribe for a student. And you could say that's just part of my utility function. And so, you know, am I being rational? With OK, so, utility so this does get down to the key claim that. You may disagree with, but I just wanted to make sure. it, state it starkly here, which is, as I said before, many people think our world is peaceful and property rights are respected because of some basically features of human nature that make us especially altruistic and unselfish and peaceful. Mm -hmm. And that, ran, you know, basically rational agents would not be so. And so in our world today, people who are more rational would, in fact, be more violent and more and you know, steal more and have revolutions more. So you have to define what you mean by rationality. I mean, I would go a rational person maximizes his utility function. And part of my utility function is if I hurt people in certain ways, that counts as a negative. Right. So but I'm for AIs, take right, but for account. AIs, you mean by rational, like what would actually help their 
you know, them collectively grow and, and prosper. Yes. That's what you mean. So that's what I meant to, by uh, humans, too. I'm trying to use the same word for both. Okay. Whatever word we use for both, right? If you want to use the maximize utility function, then you have to say, well, why would the AI utility functions be especially violent? And then you're going to use some sort of selection argument, right? Okay, yeah. I mean, we're clearly in a disequilibrium for who's having children, right? We're not, and that's something that won't persist. Absolutely, we, but that doesn't seem to contribute to our violence or peacefulness or, or respect for property rights. That just seems to be an independent error <laughs> that's yeah. separate from all the rest. Okay. Okay, if you look at that in terms of rationality, then I will agree by that definition, we are not being rational. And we're not being rational you know, for, for evolutionary reasons because the people who had those particular traits did better and were, were their ancestors. The Romans okay, were able to cooperate. So they and, have to predict that even without AI, our descendants will eventually catch on. Uh, yes, although we, we could, you know, I, ideally we would program our own genes and program the, the, the genes of our children to maintain society. Well, that would be only if we can manage to coordinate to do that. Selfishly, we would each want to make our children's genes be selfish and, you know, succeed, yes. even if that meant they were more violent. Right? Yeah, I actually wrote a paper about this a while ago that the only stable equilibrium is where you just care about reproductive fitness and that will eventually take over unless there's like a single time that can stop it. So that's great because I have a blog post with exactly that theme. I don't know. <laughs> we should check to see who, who wrote our essay first. Yes. <laughs> I'm interested to know. I mean, actually, I'll look it up as we talk here. But, um, but basically, yes, um, I, I, you know, I, I agree that consciously knowing that you want to reproduce would, in fact, be the long term equilibrium. That is, we today just don't know what we want and we act on a whole bunch of opaque motives and they would just know that's what they wanted. Right. They would have maximized, you know, reproductive fitness and utility function and. Okay, and then you postulate that in that world, there will be more violence and theft and revolutions because that's rational in that sense. Yes, unless they could, you know, coordinate to create a system that would that would stop that. But then certainly people would be willing to turn on each other if they could. Okay, but with it. but you could postulate that same coordination for the AIs, right? Yeah. The reason you're postulating the AIs being violent is that you're postulating a lack of that coordination. At the global level, right? The world is not coordinating to suppress that rational behavior. Uh, well, I mean, it would be, it's not necessarily lack of coordination. I mean, the AIs could coordinate very well to get rid of us and to get rid of some people not in their right, coalition. You're postulating the AIs could coordinate, you're postulating the AIs coordinate among each other, but not a larger coordination of the whole world to suppress it. To suppress uh, yes. that sort of behavior, right? But that's yes. what you're talking about for future humans. You're talking about an entire world coordination, not just some subset of the humans. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's true. And then, yeah, I agree with that. Okay, so basically, this thing you're worried about happening with AIs is something you thought was going to happen anyway, even without the AIs. It just might happen faster. I think that's the equilibrium. We that that's. Let's see. That's a good point. Um. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a chance we could resist the equilibrium, at least in parts of the universe. And there could be people who care about things other than reproductive fitness. But, but that's also true for AIs. Uh, I mean, on a long enough time scale, absolutely. If it, it takes a while to develop AIs and some of us could travel, you know, at high speeds to another galaxy and no, but you mean, defend whatever it. Th whatever ways you think humans could be modified to make things work better, AIs could in principle be modified to make things work better. They are just as modifiable as humans, obviously. Oh, yeah. I mean, probably much more so, especially. Okay. Well, then then that's also a possibility for AIs. Yeah. It was probably easier to modify humans and know what you're getting 
than it is to modify AIs. And know Depending on the kind of AI. I mean, the, the main thing you know about AIs is just a large range of possible variations on them, right? It's right. just a big space of possibility. Right. Okay. So, but so again, I might move the thesis more to you're not. It's not AIs you're afraid of here. It's you're afraid of change and you're afraid of fast change. I guess that that that's an accurate way of putting it. Yeah. Uh, but so I think I do think one point that I'm going to grant. Um, in, you know, in case you had any doubts, is the idea that change may speed up. Yeah. Okay. So what in the past might seem to have been acceptable long-term trajectories, as long as they took a long time, might not seem so so acceptable if they happen a lot faster. Yes, especially since we have less time to respond to the change and, and make course corrections. Well, that seems a separate issue. That is, even with even if you don't have that problem, still. You know, if if in 30 years you see some scenario that would actually have taken 3,000 or 300,000 years, that may just be jarring to you, right? You you, mm -hmm. you you no longer can count on living in the same world. Yeah, but I'm more worried about, you know, everyone going extinct. Right, but you could say, like, if you thought about it over the long, you know, basically species on Earth have gone extinct, say, roughly every million years or something. Mm-hmm. So if you were, if your lifespan was only 100 years, that might not bother you much. If your lifespan was 10 million years, that could bother you. If, yeah. So if the rate of, at which species went extinct suddenly went up by a factor of, of a million, then all of a sudden you could be very concerned. Yeah, that's, that's certainly true, and I would be. Right, so that, we could say that's what you're more worried about with AI, is just all the change that you were expecting anyway might happen a lot faster. Uh, yes, and my sort of ideal scenario was that we'd figure out a way to prevent the bad outcomes, that we would create aligned AI, and that it could stop bad changes. But were you thinking you were going to make aligned humans who would stop bad changes too? If you were thinking that's how it was going to play out in the long run? Um, no, I, I, was, I was thinking that we would create the aligned AI and it would be sufficiently powerful that really humans... Once we set it up, humans couldn't change that. Okay, but in the counterfactual world of no AI, mm -hmm. just humans, were you worried about humans not being aligned in the future? Uh, yes, and certainly worried that you know if we get that progress could make uh, make it easier for a small group of people to exterminate the rest of us deliberately or accidentally, and that their values might you know evolve to be selfish and not care about the rest of us, and that they might be more willing to be violent and have revolutions and theft. That, that could just happen with humans in the long run, yeah. even ignoring AI. And if you were worried about that scenario, maybe you were thinking, ah, but maybe we could figure out how to make aligned humans who yeah. don't do this stuff. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so, so in that terminology then, the thing you're worried about AI is just that it happens faster. Uh, it is, and there is one other point though. Um, if humans didn't have my values, but still recognizable human, if they took over, I would still say that future has value. If AIs that didn't have my values took over and they weren't sentient, I would say that no, there's no value in that future. I don't place any moral worth on that. And what makes you think they wouldn't be sentient? Oh, they might be, but I just don't know what sentience is. I don't know what's needed. Yeah, they might turn okay. out to be, but so they that's also just might a, not. That's just a generic fear of change, right? <laughs> um, literally, you have no reason to expect that change other than change is possible, and therefore you don't like it. No, I mean, I value sentient human life. Right, but you don't have no reason to expect it'll change. You only have the fear that it might change, and that's enough. That, that's, there, you don't have any particular other reason to expect that change to happen other than the fact that it's a possible change. 
Um, well, we'll be you know, not non-sentient, non-human life might outcompete us. So, but I, and I don't think like ants probably aren't sentient, and I don't think they're going to take over. But that it would bother me quite a bit if the world but became taken wouldn't over. Wouldn't it by bother non-sentient you if ants. non-sentient humans took over? Oh yeah, yeah, that too. Then okay, but so then it's though. not about humans versus AI. It's about change. Change would allow the possibility of an evolution of non-sentience. That's literally the whole argument, right? You don't have any specific mechanism by which sentience might lose other than that change is possible. I mean, yeah, but that, that's pretty general. I, I do have mechanisms whereby I think the non-sentient AI could take over. That's, but you don't know why, a... why, why would it be outcompeted? You don't have a particular theory of that, right? You just have the abstract possibility that sentience might be outcompeted. Uh, Yes, because it might be much smarter than we are, much able, you know, better able to solve a lot of problems. And that sentience would be a burden or an extra cost that it could get rid of. Uh, yes, it could. Now, it might not be, but it right, also but, could be. Right, but it still, again, just comes down to the possibility of change. So but I think this is a fundamental question that we should all face head on. That is, many futurists, of which you and I have been in the futurist community, mm-hmm. have perhaps been a little too glib... <laughs> about the assumption that we just embrace change. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we should admit that change can be pretty scary, especially if a lot of it happens in a short time. So uh, yeah. most, most of us have been okay with imagining change that happens over a very long period that when we're not there, but when you actually see the prospect of a lot of change happening in a short time, it might, you, you might pause <laughs> and hesitate. And this, I think, is the fundamental question about long-term future of humanity or civilization. That is, I think, in the past, if you had actually shown people the actual change that was coming and asked if they liked that, a lot of them wouldn't have liked it. In fact, I think a majority would have rejected the changes that actually happened. So I'm not sure about that. I mean, imagine we, we took someone from you know ancient Greece and they, we let them live with us for a couple of years. I don't think they'd be horrified by what they saw. I think they'd... So the more that they lived with us, the more they'd come to accept it. But if they just heard an abstract description of it while currently living in their world, mm-hmm. they would have been more horrified. Yeah. And I think that's the analogy of people facing right now. We aren't living in this future world of AIs. We're just abstractly imagining it. And that's the point where we get maximum hesitation. Okay, but the way I would judge a future is say, if I could live in that future for a few years and that me would have a, say, yeah, this is okay, or this is great, then I would say that's a positive future, even if I I was repulsed by a simple description of it. Right, but how are we ever going to create this context where you could evaluate them through this process? That is, until this world actually exists, we're not gonna be able to let you do this. Yeah, although it might be obvious. I mean, if it's like the paperclip maximizer, then I'm pretty confident if I lived among paperclip sure. factories, right. I'm not like but the future. That's not really one of the options on the table here, right? <laughs> that's a cartoon extreme. Uh, well, AI is fulfilling some objective and not having any sentience. I'm, I'm confident if there's no sentience in the future, then that's not going to be an outcome I'll be convinced of. Right, but you don't have any particular reason to expect no sentience. So, so the, this, this capitalist scenario of these firms evolving their AIs to profit, mac, profit maximization, it seems to me that the obvious, at least surface effect there would be create pretty charming, likable AIs that mostly act in a very pleasant, congenial ways. I, I, uh, I completely agree. I, I think the future, I mean, 
unless and until they destroy us, this AIs are going to be fantastic. We're going to really like them. We're going to fall in love with our assistants. You'll, your airline will be canceled. You'll call to make a reservation and you'll love talking to the AI chatbot. They'll make you feel really good. And that, that's going to all be wonderful, I think. Okay, so then the risk is just, uh, you know, that somehow they coordinate to have this revolution, right? Yes. If, if they don't coordinate to have the revolution, you're, you're going to like them. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And then, you know, in some sense, presumably these firms will also look at their inclination to coordinate for a revolution and test that. I would think that would especially be a, a, a test suite. I, I'm concerned about the, the negative externality where most of the harm of there being a revolution will, the, will not be on the one particular firm, it will be on all of humanity. And so you'll have a suboptimal incentive to test. You'll accept, hey, we get a little, we, you know, we get much richer and we've increased by 1% chance that, you know, humanity goes extinct and firm will take that bet. So I have a recent blog post called Foom Liability. Mm -hmm. Yes, I've read that, but go on. So, so the, the idea is that even though I'm much less worried than others about this, I would like to choose robust policy that doesn't depend on my or others estimates. So the idea is then to create a scoring system of how close a scenario is to the FOOM problematic scenario, mm -hmm. and then create, add extra liability for damages that get closer to that scenario. And I think that's a great idea. And if the response to that blog post was, was for everyone saying, yeah, we've got to do this. Let's try and this is of course the right way. I would be much more optimistic, but I, I think there are things our species could do, but we're probably not going to do them. But at least you and I can agree as podcast <laughs> commenters that we can perhaps identify solutions that don't depend so much on our differing opinion here. And Absolutely. that's in fact exactly what economists try to do, right? Yes, yes. I, I, I yeah, that's, I completely agree. That's like when, when I teach about um, climate change, I say, look, economists know how to solve this, right? We have a Pigouvian tax on carbon, but I, we have no idea of how to get the political system to accept our views. But we, you know, this, we can solve these problems. We can solve a bunch of them, but we can't right. politically solve them. But I, I, I do think that in the mass media and even in Twitter, et cetera, people get so focused on these key disagreements like the chance of doom or whatever, mm -hmm. and they get distracted from what would be robust solutions that would work in a, whether the chance is low or high. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think there's tremendous value in coming up with solutions because there might come a future point in which we get a lot of clarification on, on the AI risk. I mean, the AIs themselves might tell us that, yeah, you're in serious danger or no, don't worry about it. And they give us convincing reasons not to be worried. So it seems to me like we're still a long way away from these machines being anywhere near to this risk that you're worried about. So unless you think there's a scenario where oh. they could suddenly jump ahead. Well, then... let's talk about that. Um, I think the key will be when the best programmers are AIs. I think once you have the best programmers at AIs and they're programming themselves and then you have the recursive self-improvement thing where they get better at programming. Okay, and, and We're I, a long way from that, right? Um, I don't know. I. I mean, how long you know that you used to be a programmer, you know this better than I would. How long, what, what's your estimate for how far away that is? It, it's less in terms of time and more in terms of we would see markers before that, right? That is, when programmers, when programs are the best programmers, when AIs are the best programmers, then they will be doing a lot of the programming. That you, they, they're just not going to be the best, you um, know, 
but the markers before that aren't we seeing the markers that i mean human programmers are making we're seeing good te- we're seeing good human pro- ai teams we're seeing maybe a 20 percent increase in productivity of programmers using ai on average mm-hmm. say as the median estimate that's very different from ai's just being able to take over the whole job and do it all I know, I I agree, but that is a sign. That's what you'd expect, right? As AIs get better and better at programming, you'd expect people to make more use of them, low-level programmers to lose their jobs. I think that's happening. But we've seen that for 70 years. That is, people have for a long time used computers to help programming go better. That's Mm -hmm. not a recent thing. And you don't think the recent... Uh, chat gpt that's not a huge breakthrough that kind of i mean it's a great breakthrough it's just not close to this (laughs) endpoint so again but you know for 70 years we've had big breakthroughs you know Mm. every five or ten years that that's been the long-term history of ai and computer science we've continued to have big breakthroughs periodically but the question is how close are we to this endpoint not have we had big breakthroughs I, I agree. And I mean what are the chances you would say that within 20 years the best programmers will be ai I'm less interested in that estimate and more in what's the chance that we would suddenly have this AI system that could coordinate and have a civil war without precursors that we would notice as the point at which to like to do something different. That that's the key question. Like when is the time to act? If if now is not the time to act, we want to sort of get ready to act later and think more about it, but not act now. And th- this will always be the key question: is when is the best time to be deal with any particular problem? Okay, I I would agree with that, but that sort of presupposes a, a level of coordination and rationality among humans. I my model is that it could be really clear we're in a very bad situation to people paying attention, but we don't collectively do anything about it. Sure, but that's true if that day is today or later, right? Still, the question is which day is the day that we should lament we can't do anything. <laughs> Either there's a future date when we should do something and it's clear and we don't do something, or that date we should do something is today and we can lament that we won't do something. But those are two very different scenarios. Uh, yes, but if, if we're very worried about you know our, our species' ability to get it together, then we might want to slow down right now, even though if we were better coordinated, we could pick a better you know we could we could wait. But you would only want to slow down now if you thought that would substantially increase our ability to coordinate effectively later. Uh, it doesn't have to be substantial. I mean, just for a slight improvement, a slight chance of us surviving. I mean, the future is so big and so important that for a 1% gain. Okay, I would, well, I, I'm I happy to now. call 1% substantial, but you have to realize okay. there are other costs to this. To this oh, I, I agree. Slowdown. Yeah, and I the, definitely Those agree. other costs could be well over 1% effects. Uh, I mean, not... By my kind of morality, I mean, I, if I give weight to people who don't exist, then so many people could live in the future that a slight increase in that future occurring and then being happy dominates any effects on people today. So I think we're actually at substantial risk of slowing down innovation to a halt and then having the world economy decay and rot. So okay, then, that's then, a yeah. risk I'm worried about. So I see halting a big category of tech progress as a big potential step in that direction. Okay, and yeah, given that assumption, you're, you're right. Slowing down would be very, very bad. And there's also the other risk that we'll destroy ourselves through war or bioterrorism. And that's an advantage of going faster is that we could 
you know, escape Earth before we have the chance to destroy it, which we'll eventually do on current course. So, you know, I'm very disturbed by the history of, say, genetic engineering or nuclear energy, where we basically we took large categories of potentially very powerful technologies and we basically set them aside and said, we're not going to do that. And yeah. those those temporary pauses have been continuing now for decades. Yeah, uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, that's certainly the way we, we handle atomic powers. It's been horrible. So that's quite possible. I mean, if you could get the political will together to do a pause in AI, I worry that it won't be temporary. Okay, that that's a risk. Although if you care about the future, you'd have to say that's, you know, it, the civilization collapses, that we don't then get it going within the next million years. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a substantial risk. Yes, I think... So, but this is an interesting, different topic. Um, you know, if if we weren't so good at coordinating, I'd think a collapse of civilization would probably just lead to a re renewed revival of civilization later. But I fear that we'd be good enough at coordinating that we would prevent a new rise. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, and we don't know. We don't know how likely the industrial revolution was. We could have gotten extremely lucky. It could have been inevitable given agriculture, or it could have been in a one in a hundred thousand event. And so, it, it's hard to know uh, the probabilities. And we've also probably done things like mining all the uh, useful material close to the surface that you know another civilization in a million years wouldn't be able to do. So I feel like at some point, I mean. We identified that uh, you're worried about AIs just getting more rational about betraying each other and having revolutions. But I thought mm -hmm. there was another point in there that, um, well, you were worried about them also not being sentient. But if we assume they're sentient and we assume they stay peaceful enough, you're not so worried about them just being different because they're just the fact that they're not humans, i.e. But they would, they would be derived from humans, they would be built by humans, and they would be evolved to be much like humans. Ah. Uh. Gosh, I don't know. I mean, that that might turn out to be true, but it might just be there's a surface level comfort with us, but what's really going on is completely different. And you have less worried about that humans because humans are often duplicitous. <laughs> I, I mean, I just, yeah, I mean, because, you know, our we have this very similar genetic programming. And if people are duplicitous, it's usually in, in ways you can kind of predict. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt. <laughs> I mean, humans really do have substantially conflicting values, and they do deceive each other and hide things from each other. So I'm not sure that I'm more worried about AIs in that regard than I am in humans. But you would be worried if there was a new group of superhumans that developed that if, say, you know, a hundred mutation, like the X-Men kind of situation, where like if they wanted to take the rest of us out, they could do that. That would scare you a little bit, right? Well, I would just dislike the idea of destruction through civil war. But if there wasn't one, these, you know, let's imagine, again, the X-Men scenario, these little children are born, they have superpowers. It's clear by the time they're adults, if they got together, they could just do anything they wanted to the rest of us. That but, would scare you? Well, would they? I mean, so there's two yeah, scenarios. Yeah, we don't know, say. One scenario is they just out-compete us. They just, you know, get the best jobs and take most wages, and we have to push to the margin and retire because they're the best. Mm -hmm. And another scenario is they make civil wars and, and revolutions and steal stuff. Yeah. Kill people. I dislike that second scenario, but I'm not so sure it's because they're the ones doing it. I just dislike any big revolution and civil war and killing a lot of people. But wouldn't you in 
wouldn't the probability of that Civil War situation go up if these X-Men children have been born? That's not obvious to me, no. It's not obvious to me that just because they're better at us, they're more likely to have a revolution to kill us all. That, that, is the, that may be the key point on which we're stuck. Okay. So, I mean, a small group of humans right now couldn't take over the world, especially humans that are not currently in positions of power and privilege. But these, these people could. Well, if you want to postulate that their powers are especially useful for war rather than peace, that right mm -hmm. there is a problem, right? Okay. So we often think of technologies, many technologies are dual use, some technologies are military, some technologies are peaceful. Mm -hmm. We would rather innovation happen in peaceful technologies rather than military technologies because that all else equal, that would just increase the, say, the chance of war and the mm -hmm. destruction of war. So yeah. that would be similarly true of the X-Men or whatever. If their telepathy, say, was especially useful in war compared to peace. Telepathy is not so useful in peace, but telepathy is really helpful if you're trying to suss out your enemies. Yeah. Then I might be worried about that technology, that particular ability appearing because it is especially warlike ability. Mm -hmm. But I don't see AIs as especially, their abilities as especially warlike. Okay. Uh, I mean, yeah, they'll be better at both war and, and, and peaceful activities. So I, right. I take that point. But the fact that we, if we're no longer needed, though, for the economy, we're not that important, doesn't it make it more likely that we'll be wiped out? It doesn't make it a certainty, but doesn't well, that's, it so that's really increase the factor, right? That's yeah, yeah. Why, why don't we just kill all the retirees today? So if I thought we were on the borderline of killing retirees today, <laughs> then I might worry something would push us over the border. It seems like we're really far from that border right now. I, I agree, and that's why if the AIs, we knew they'd basically share our values, I wouldn't be worried. But you know, they're going to be worried. they're going to be built to appear to share our values. I mean, yes, there'll yes. be a long a long period where their 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 makers and providers will work very hard to make it look like, to all intents and purposes, they do act like we do. They will be, they intend to be fit in human social slots. They will interact with humans. They will that humans will judge their how congenial they are. So there will be a long evolution period where they will be large selection pressures and efforts to make them act a lot like humans. At least the ones that are customer facing. There'll be hedge funds and militaries that. Well, even those will have people to interact with. Sure. But yes, people who interact less with people. But mm -hmm. again, the question is how much extra effort is there to make it sort of human like if it's if it doesn't cost that much, then they would do it. And of course, humans are duplicitous and, you know, often betray each other. So. I wouldn't expect them to betray humans less often than humans betray humans. Or, and that uh, might be enough to make you worry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think I do accept a lot of your points. And I, I would agree that I do think our, our, our fortune right now is, is sort of fragile given human history. And okay. given very bad things that have happened, like, you know, the, the Nazis, right. of course, and the Soviets. Right. So I think I think the, the most interesting high level question uh, that we should leave this with, because I have to get on to something else, is sure. just the issue of generically, would you allow change <laughs> if you just understood how different we are from the past and how big the range of things that could happen in the future are? Do you feel lucky, punk? Uh, because in, in principle, like the, our descendants can go a lot of different directions mm -hmm. and a lot of them would be pretty stark and different from our world and, and worlds we might be repelled by. Yeah, okay. 
Yeah, and I'd, I'd want to know the distribution or take a guess at it of the change. but Right, and the main thing we have is the world we have now and all the worlds we've seen in the past. Mm-hmm. And I guess the worlds we can imagine in the future, although that's hard. But you know, I, th- I do think if you just say, gee, we like our world and all these future worlds could be really bad and who knows which will be how bad, I think a lot of people would say, let's not, just let's stop change. I think I would if that would guarantee that humans would survive for trillions of years in our current state. I, I would pick I, yeah. that over the change. And, I, and I'm afraid, unfortunately, stopping change will induce rot. And basically, this kind of growth is so far the only thing that's ever overcome rot. And so I think the real choice is between stopping and then slowly rotting into oblivion or allowing growth that overcomes rot but also produces strange change. Right. Well, then you're saying there can't, you can't stop change because rot is a form of change. Right. Well, yes, in that sense, yes. Okay. So it's which type of change you're saying? Well, it's been nice talking to you. Yes, enjoy talking with you. This has been a very different conversation than people normally have about AI risks. Well, good, because you know we share a disciplinary background and that yeah. allows us to have more productive conversations. I agree. Okay. Well, thanks very much, Robin. Enjoy talking with you. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay.